Uh, it is a, a great pleasure to be here tonight and to speak to so many this evening who have such an influence on and such a passion for education in Scotland. Uh, you will all know, of course, that the 27th of March is the anniversary of the death of James VI and I. James might be seen by some as the patron saint of the Better Together campaign, but as ever, history is more complex than that. It was James's ambition that drove him to be the first monarch of the United Kingdoms of Scotland and England. Yet he was a monarch who lived with two parliaments, even if he wanted something different. And those two parliaments outlived not just him, but also his son and his two grandsons. Those facts might lead us to the unusual perspective that the existence of a single parliament or a single state within these islands has been a less long-lasting model than the diversity of more than one parliament and more than one state. James also had the wisdom, of course, to grant this university a new charter, though he was only 11 when he did so. That uh, Nova Erectigo refounded the university, helped put it on a sound financial footing with important rights to raise and retain rents. These days, of course, Anton finds other ways to raise and generate income, and this university is firmly established as one of our nation's success stories. Survey after survey has confirmed the university's reputation for excellence in research, education, and innovation. It's now consolidated its position amongst the top 40 institutions in Europe. And it's a great credit to your leadership, Anton, to the staff and the students that Glasgow occupies the place it does at the leading edge of European universities, and it plays a global role as well. The Scottish Government will always continue to support such excellence. Of course, excellence and high achievement can be found throughout education in Scotland in our schools, our colleges, and our universities. Our higher education sector in particular is not just good, but great. It's, that's not, not only true in national, but in international terms. Only Switzerland has more world-class universities per head than Scotland. Yet, three weeks ago, the Independent Commission on School Reform concluded that good though our schools were, and they are very good and the Commission said so, they could not presently be called great. I think my job as Cabinet Secretary for Education and Lifelong Learning is to change that. My job is to ensure that what is good becomes great. Not for reasons of machismo or pride, but in the interests of every child in our country. Not so that we can bask in the glory of how others see us, but so we can be satisfied when we look in the mirror and see ourselves. I'm convinced that independence will help us achieve that aim, help us to make the good into great and the best even better. Tonight, I want to talk in detail about the school system and how we tackle the progress from good to great for every school-aged child. That should be of relevance to everyone here because we all need Scotland schools to do their very best. What they provide is the foundation for further progress in college, university, and employment. The school system is the bedrock of our nation's success. Later in the year, I'm going to return to the topic of education and our constitutional future in a lecture that will look specifically at universities and colleges. My colleague Aileen Campbell will do the same on the issue of families and parenting. I've asked Dr. Alistair Allen to take on the issues of science and the issue of languages in this regard. And I've also asked Angela Constance to address youth employment issues in the Constitution at yet another of these events. That series of contributions to the great national debate we are now embarked on, that great national journey towards the 18th of September 2014 and beyond, will emphasize that what we have in education, training, parenting, skills development, science, 
lifelong learning, all that is worth having, worth investing in, and worth protecting. But it will also demonstrate how we could do even better, how we could and should move from good to great. Our current successes, I firmly believe, are as a result of education being almost completely devolved. The significant progress and changes of the last decade are because we have a Scottish Parliament. Curriculum for Excellence could not have been devised and implemented without the Scottish Parliament, for it was the Parliament in its early years which took a hard look at Scotland's supposed educational primacy and accepted, difficult as it was, that much of the guilt had worn off our so-called gold standard. And then the Scottish Parliament, across the parties, created the impetus and the space for an enormously important educational innovation and has, in the most part, resisted the temptation to use it as a political weapon. It's important to me that that consensus holds. It concerns me there are signs it might not. The old SNP membership card when I was party chief executive used to have two objectives in it. The first was, of course, home rule or independence. But the second was described as furthering all Scottish interests. Educational reform and educational progress are about furthering Scottish interests. They're worthy of support from those who do not believe in independence, as well as those who do. In fact, those who seek to derail progress on education or any other matter because of an obsession with the defeat of independence are working not just against the interests of the whole of Scotland, but against the agreed process to resolve the issue of independence, a process set out in the Edinburgh Agreement. So I say at this early stage, let's work together for Scotland's children no matter other views that you might hold. I do believe that a fully independent Scotland could and would do more for our children. It would be the best country to grow up in. In his speech at the SNP Spring Conference this weekend, the First Minister said that a transformational shift towards childcare will be one of the very first tasks of an independent Scotland. Our ambition is to move Scotland to the levels of support for childcare that are commonplace across Europe. And we believe that our approach to childcare should be the hallmark of our approach to social and economic policy. As the First Minister said, within an independent Scotland, we will promote these measures because we want to advance both our economy and our society. Within an independent Scotland, we also believe that the right to education should be enshrined in a written constitution. Free education provided out of general taxation as a societal good. And the allocation of resources to education would be much better undertaken when the size of the cake is larger and the division of it is not prescribed by spending patterns and priorities beyond our borders. Better, too, in the context, the Scottish context, of seeing education as an investment, not as a cost, as an opportunity for all, not as a privilege for those who can afford it. Independence for education is about independence of choice regarding priorities and action. It shouldn't be constrained by bad decisions made elsewhere. Bad decisions in areas which directly affect educational outcomes. Two weeks ago, the Deputy First Minister made a speech about child poverty. The Parliament also debated the issue that week. It is undeniable, as we know from the work of the Chief Medical Officer, Sir Harry Burns, and from others, that cognitive abilities are set early and are adversely affected by poverty. The Early Years Collaborative is focused on the readiness to learn, which is a connected issue. So many elements can interfere with the potential of even the youngest child before they start school and hold that child back throughout their school education. 
but it doesn't have to be like that. Let's not for a second believe that we cannot afford the best for our young people. Our national balance sheet is strong and independence would make it stronger. Our population makes up 8.4% of these islands, yet last year we contributed 9.9% in revenue and got 9.3% in return. In terms of GDP per head, right now, an independent Scotland would be the eighth wealthiest country in the league table of the world's most developed nations. Scotland can afford independence. In fact, as the First Minister argued last weekend, Scotland cannot afford not to be independent. Because being better off isn't just about money. It's about living in a society where the right decisions are made and the right national priorities are set. With control of the tax, benefits and welfare systems, as well as the labour system, we would be able to coordinate links with key public services like education. We'd be free to create an even better education system in which everyone would have a stake and which would be central to how our society progresses. It's not a just a continuing, it's an absolutely unnecessary scar on our society and our future that welfare changes now are hitting 700,000 working Scots. In fact, by 2015, wealth, Westminster welfare cuts will take £4.5 billion from the purses and wallets of ordinary, hard-working people right across Scotland who can least afford it. Earlier this year, a further 15,000 Scottish children were pushed into poverty as a result of the 1% uprating of working age benefits. Speaking in Edinburgh today, Ian Duncan Smith tried hard to provide a good reason for these austerity-driven cuts. They are, however, beyond justification. They're bad in themselves. They're also bad because of their effect on other matters, such as education. A child in poverty uh, is a child that has yet one more barrier to learning. A hungry child can't do his or her best. A child who worries about the very future of their family is a child who is distracted from fulfilling their potential. In Scotland, I believe as a government, we are doing all that we can to cushion our education system for the impact of these Westminster decisions. And we will go on doing so. But children are feeling the impact. And the tighter the squeeze becomes, the more difficult it is to ensure that children and young people arrive at school motivated and ready to learn. The primary drivers of equity, and I want to talk about equity a lot tonight, the primary drivers of equity lie in the tax and the benefit system and in the operation of policy in the labour market. How they operate depends on the attitudes of, the society, of society. Our social attitudes in Scotland demand that we value and achieve equity. Yet the UK government holds the levers that control the labour market, taxes and benefits. They bar the route out of poverty and into equity. We must find a way to create opportunities for all. The equation is quite clear. Westminster controls tax, benefits and labour market policy. Scotland controls education policy. One is presently undermining and holding back the other. So until we have those powers, we'll continue to swim against the tide in our journey towards greater equity and success. It's no accident that those countries like Finland that are best at delivering equity and academic success in equal measure are already independent. Finland has the full range of levers at its disposal. That's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient one for educational greatness. 
Finland also has a long-term educational plan, which is bought into by all sections of society. Put simply, a fair and progressive education system is regarded as central to a fair and progressive society. In January, the OECD published a PISA in Focus document, which stated in the clearest possible terms that the education systems don't have to choose between equity and opportunity and high performance. They don't. We should never believe those who design or promote educational systems based on that fallacy. I'm certain that with independence, only with independence, that we'll be able to realize our educational ambitions in full. Only independence will deliver real equity and equality in our society. And delivering such equality and equity within a great educational system is my responsibility working in partnership with you all. Now, of course, many good things are happening. In our schools, you'll see ambition and achievement in the buildings, the results, and the pupils themselves. You'll see dynamic and excellent teachers working with creativity and passion. And you'll see well-equipped classrooms with pupils who are being inspired in their learning. In our colleges, you'll see a sector that's delivering improvements on the back of the first major reform since incorporation 20 years ago. And in universities like this one, you'll see excellence in teaching and research. I'm particularly encouraged by the widening access program that's being developed here in Glasgow and in other universities. It is to this university's great credit that nearly a quarter of its Scottish domiciled students now come from the 40% most deprived areas in Scotland. And that, through the Access to Professions scheme, 40% of those studying medicine here come from the most disadvantaged postcodes. In fact, Glasgow has the highest rate of participation from disadvantaged areas to be found in any of Scotland's ancient universities. And I remain keen that Glasgow and others continue to progress. Now, much of this educational progress has been underpinned by some of the important decisions this government has taken over the last six years. It has been this government which restored the principle of free higher education, benefiting 125,000 students and saving students around £27,000 compared with the cost of studying in England. It's been this government that has built or refurbished 403 schools. It's been this government that's expanded free childcare for three and four-year-olds and looked after two-year-olds by almost half since 2007, benefiting 120,000 children around Scotland. And it has been this government which has taken forward the most significant improvement to school education for a generation. Curriculum for Excellence is inspiring young Scots and providing them with the tools and confidence to make their way in the world. The outcome of Curriculum for Excellence is not learning itself, but the capacity and desire to learn. Not only knowledge, but also empowerment. To invoke Yeats, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And with Curriculum for Excellence, Scottish children are being given the spark for a lifetime of curiosity and inquiry. Curriculum for Excellence, to put it very simply, is how we now do education in Scotland. And as a result, Scottish education is getting better, but it's still not good enough. For we're not meeting the needs of all of Scotland's children all of the time. Scotland still has a long-standing attainment problem. We have a lack of equity in our schools. Generally, school leavers from the 20% most disadvantaged areas have a tariff score that is less than half that of leavers from the 20% most affluent areas. That gap is greater than most of the developed nations against which we measure ourselves. Importantly, other nations like Norway, which have very similar policies on inclusion, 
have much narrower gaps in attainment between rich and poor. And alongside this, we have a situation where some schools, working with children and young people in very similar circumstances and areas, actually perform very differently. It's a compelling fact that when it comes to educational attainment, for some children, where you live in Scotland still determines your prospects more than your abilities or even your hard work. There are some very effective schools in disadvantaged areas, but none, none has ever matched the performance of schools in our more affluent areas. Clearly, there is a problem. To be the nation we want to be, we have to tackle it. And to be fair, all administrations since devolution have tried. But such problems are deeply ingrained in our society and in our education system. I was very struck by words from Peter Peacock, the longest serving education minister since devolution, about this matter in an article last week. Peter said, I am but one of a succession of past Scottish education ministers who have been well aware of this while in office. One of a succession of education ministers who tried to do their bit toward turning this around. Peter worked hard on this issue, as did Sam Galbraith, Jack McConnell, Cathy Jimison, Hugh Henry and Fiona Hislop, all the post-devolution education ministers. They did make a difference, but more needs to be done and I want to do more. The greatest difference, I do believe, can only come through independence. Indeed, the real difference will come when Scotland gains control over tax, benefits and the labour market system, and that these are integrated in how we work. But I know we can also make some considerable difference now if we focus as a parliament and as a government on the key statistics and try using evidence-based policymaking to devise solutions. Now, we have some good tools to hand. Firstly, and let's not forget this basic but essential fact, Scotland is a country which values education. Education's in our DNA, it is woven through our history and our sense of ourselves. We are a learning nation. Secondly, we have a long-term plan for success. That plan is curriculum for excellence. It has been the best part of a decade in the making and it commands widespread support. Thirdly, we know that the success of any country's education system is dependent upon the quality of its teachers and the excellence of its educational leadership. High quality people achieve high quality outcomes for children and we have taken and are taking many steps to further enhance the excellence that exists already in our teaching profession. John Steinbeck memorably referred to teaching as an art form in his wonderful phrase, the medium is the human mind and spirit. Finland recognized that a long time ago and invested heavily in its teachers. That is what we are doing and we're going to go on doing. In this tough times in terms of paying conditions for teachers, they're not exempt. Yet I'm convinced that the professionalism of the teaching workforce will carry us through. For teachers, Curriculum for Excellence is about professionalism. It's about creating time for teaching. It was never about making more time for paperwork and it must never be allowed to become that. Curriculum for Excellence frees our teachers to teach. We must resist any imposition that restricts and hampers that freedom. With these advantages, with a strong passion for education, with a clear plan for education, and with a great workforce for education, we are, I believe, ready for the move from good to great and to ensure that our system is based on equity. And we need to do that because education changes lives and it should change and enhance every life.
I want to pause briefly to illuminate that fundamental point with the help of the man I and many others regard as Scotland's greatest modern novelist. Robin Jenkins was an alumnus of this university. When he studied literature here in the years before the Second World War, he would have been very familiar with this very lecture theater. Indeed, when he took a Latin class in the winter months of 1931-1932, he would have been sitting exactly where you are sitting now. This year marks the centenary of his birth, and I'm delighted to see it being celebrated on this campus and across the country. He was born just six miles southeast of here in the village of Flemington near Cambus Lang. His wasn't the easiest of beginnings. His mother was widowed when he was only seven years old. He and his three siblings were brought up in straitened circumstances. Flemington at the time was a place where, in his own words, pitbings rose like volcanoes out to fields and woods and a place where poverty and deprivation were woven into the very fabric of everyday life. A bursary to Hamilton Academy, then a fee-paying school and a university scholarship offered Jenkins a means of escape. However, it's clear that the poverty he endured during these formative years was to shape his outlook forever. In line with Dickens, and the comparison is very apt given Jenkins' place in the tradition of social realism, Jenkins yearned for a better world in which the twin demons of poverty and inequality were vanquished. Like any artistic realist, his imagined world was intended to stand in comparison to our real one. Amplified in some places, exaggerated in others, that's the point. His fictions hold a mirror up to ourselves and compel us to respond to the distortions that we see. Repeatedly in his novels, we encounter children who, despite living in the most desperate urban squalor, retain their humanity along with a quiet dignity. Nowhere can that be illustrated more poignantly than in the character of Smout McTavish, a childhood friend of the young Fergus Lamont in the novel of that name. Smout, writes Jenkins, lived in a single end with his parents and three sisters. There were two set-in beds. Smout himself slept on the floor on an old mattress. Mice trotted over him. If he was sorry for himself, no one ever heard him say so. That he was embarrassed by the holes in his breeks was shown by the way he tried to hide them. But still... He didn't complain. Beaten down by deprivation, the cruel twist is the fact that Smout is killed at the front shortly after being called up for World War I. Learning is out of Smout's reach. He never had a chance to shine at school or even to complete his education. Poverty and an early grave are his lot. And Jenkins condemns society for that failing. For Jenkins, as a novelist and as a teacher, which was his lifelong profession at home and abroad, had a passionate belief in the power of education to transform lives for the better. If society could only but send children to school and keep them there, then they would have a chance to flourish. And he went further. He regarded teachers as having the power to lift or flatten the potential and life chances of children. Schools could be places of liberation or places of oppression. He did put education on a pedestal, but he shone a harsh light on those who failed in their duty, which that place demands. Jenkins saw education as the only reliable means of realizing a young person's potential, every young person's potential. And he constantly explored the transformative part of education in such novels as Happy for the Child and in that chilling account of educational failure, The Changeling. As an education secretary who has himself benefited from inspirational teachers and the very best of Scottish education, um, and as a child and as a spouse of teachers, I share Jenkins' faith in education and teaching.
When I reflect on my own education, teachers such as Alex Syme, who I encountered, encountered in my fifth and sixth years at Mar College, and who inspired me to go on to study literature at university, I know that education changes lives. It changed my life. It defines our destinations, and it sustains our ambitions. And I think everyone here tonight has also had those experiences of education that confirm that view. And that's why I believe we must offer not just a good, but a great education to all. And where we fail to do so, we must redouble our efforts to break down every barrier to attainment and every blockage on the learner journey. This isn't just about improving access to university or college. Admirable through recent improvements in these areas have been, and more are on the way, now that the post-16 bill has passed at stage one today in the parliament. It's actually about ensuring that all of our children and young people are engaged in their education at every level and in getting all the skills and knowledge to succeed in work and in life. <coughs> Last year, the Raising Attainment Group, a group of experienced head teachers, provided me with expert advice to help address these very issues. Their report, coupled with the work being developed by the Association of Directors of Education in Scotland and Education in Scotland itself, and identifies the key actions that are needed to raise successfully the attainment of all children, including the most deprived. Their conclusions confirmed that with Curriculum for Excellence, we have exactly the right sort of conditions and professional infrastructure to create an education system that can drive forward continuous improvement, that can move from good to great. I was struck three weeks ago when the Commission on School Reform reported at how many of their recommendations were already the subject of action by the government. That too is a sign of hope. However, if we're to realize the potential of every child, there's still more to do. Let's start by securing national agreement for national action. We need a guiding alliance for change, which makes the work with our partners all the more important. We've already held a successful education roundtable in partnership with COSLA and ADES, and we'll be holding another event in the near future with education conveners and directors to agree together the kind of change we want to see if we're to successfully ensure equality in educational outcomes for all our children. And of course, we need to engage at the very earliest point with the educational workforce and ensure their skills, knowledge, and experience are brought to bear on our shared agenda for progress. And if we can start by agreeing on that united front, then we need to agree then on what further interventions we can make, both nationally and locally. And there are at least six areas where I believe we can, working together, make some early progress. Firstly, and as I've said, partnerships are important in closing the gap between schools and departments. That's why I want to take forward, with agreement by all parties, a nationally coordinated program to partner schools, so they can share best practice with each other. This program will be underway by June, and I'm delighted to say that already we have agreement from ADES and SLS that they'll work with us on it. We know from other education systems, such as in Ontario, that this partnership approach works very well. We know that some schools in Scotland are already working together in learning partnerships to some degree, and that in many cases they're showing clear benefits. We've seen some encouraging cross-authority working between Glasgow and West Lothian, for example. That collegiality is, of course, central to the Scottish democratic tradition. However, through a national programme, we'll accelerate such development and go much further. 
We want to see partnerships between schools which outwardly have very similar characteristics, but which perform very differently, and they can learn from each other. We want to see more links between schools with a strong track record of success and those that have experienced difficulties and are aspiring to change. Each relationship will be a long-term one, and it will be of mutual benefit to all of the schools and departments that are involved. Schools themselves, school leaders, education authorities, and Education Scotland all have an opportunity to support such improvement, and they all stand to gain from the approach. Every school has something to learn and something to teach. Learning and teaching at the heart of the programme and the improvement we want to see. So I hope everyone, including the teaching unions, will support this innovation. Secondly, we know that the quality of the teaching workforce is crucial, uh, both in the continuing adoption and embedding of curriculum for excellence and in driving up attainment in our schools. We need to have the right number of teachers with the right skills and the right experience in the right places. Our strong commitment to teacher quality is demonstrated by the establishment of an ambitious and challenging agenda which is being both led and overseen by the National Implementation Board, chaired by Professor Petra Vend, to deliver improvements in every aspect of teacher education. There's more that we can do to meet our aspirations on teacher quality, and I believe that our long-held ambition to reduce class sizes will be crucial in breaking the link between deprivation and attainment. This government is committed to progressive reductions in class sizes in primaries one to three and in areas of greatest deprivation. There are significant resources going into the system to support teacher numbers and class sizes. Some of these resources are also tied to decisions taken at the national level between COSLA and the Scottish Government. I recognise in these tough times that it's right we should consider how collectively we make best use of these resources to deliver the improvements we want to see. The current economic conditions do present all of us, including local authorities, with huge challenges. And for local authorities, I recognise that those financial challenges don't relate only to education, but to the whole range of local government services. Now, these financial constraints have meant we haven't been able to move as quickly on class sizes as any of us would have wanted. Working with COSLA, we took action to reduce P1 class size in 2011. The 2012 census showed we'd virtually wiped out large P1 classes. That shows the effectiveness of legislation. At the same time, working with COSLA and the teaching unions, we've been able to halt the decline in teacher numbers. And I believe the time is now right to discuss how best to make further progress. I'm clear that the evidence in the early years, particularly in areas of deprivation, shows that smaller class sizes do make a difference. But I accept that others hold a different view and that we want to debate the value for money of all such developments, especially in the current context. Therefore, I'm keen to explore and debate in partnership and consultation with COSLA and other stakeholders the extent to which we can build on the progress that local authorities have already made, how our policies in class sizes and teacher numbers can play a role in delivering improved outcomes, and how this contributes to closing the attainment gap. We must assure that whatever changes we make complement our drive on supporting teacher quality and enhancing the positive experience of curriculum for excellence. We'll be working hard with our partners to issue a consultation partner in the coming weeks, and I hope then we'll have the widest debate and discussion about applying class size reductions and teacher numbers to the issue of attainment. Thirdly, we know that good, timely, and relevant information about schools is itself an important tool in driving up attainment. The attainment group made precisely that point. 
but we need to use the information intelligently, not to create an extra burden for teachers. Indeed, as we've said from the outset, curriculum for excellence is about effective learning and teaching, not about creating overly bureaucratic tracking systems or a paper chase. That's why I'm pleased to note the progress that's been made in the development of the senior phase benchmarking tool. That tool's entirely in line with the systems we already have in place for curriculum for excellence. It's about using information smartly to compare the performance of pupils in the senior phase of secondary school. It makes better use of existing evidence. It's not about creating new data burdens. It will benchmark how pupils perform in terms of literacy and numeracy, how they achieve more broadly in terms of qualifications and wider awards, and where they move on to when they leave school, how their school is closing the attainment gap. And crucially, this tool takes a virtual school approach. So schools should be able to measure themselves against how an ideal model might perform with a similar pupil mix, demography, and educational progress. In other words, to compare the reality of a school to what an ideal school in that location could and should do. Now, collaboration in developing that prototype will take place over the next 18 months, and it's going to be launched during 2014. It will be a tool for every school and every teacher. We also know that good information is vital for parents. A de decade ago or more, there was a debate in Scotland, a passionate debate, about the publication of league tables. The right decision was made then by Labour, the Labour Liberal administration. The decision not to publish them in the form that is used south of the border. At its worst, the league table mentality insists that measurement can only be meaningful if it's used in judgmental comparisons. It does not understand that such comparisons are nearly impossible in education, given diversity of cohorts, communities, and cultures. However, we do need to constantly improve the quality of information we offer to parents. And all the evidence tells us that parents will be more likely to become involved in their children's education if they have the right information, not just more information. That's why we introduced new school handbook legislation. And that's why I'm proposing three further improvements. Firstly, I've asked Education Scotland to bring together all the data, schools online, the information resource and parent zone, HMI inspection reports, local school plans, a range of other material, and create a front end, a portal, which will allow parents to access that information quickly and easily. Parents like teachers will be able to work not harder but smarter, getting an overview, geographic, demographic, educational, of the school their children attend and what to expect of it. Secondly, I've commissioned a new publication which will be provided to every parent in Scotland. It will tell the story of Curriculum for Excellence, how it came about, how it affects every year of the learner journey, what universities and colleges are doing to take account of it, like the information that Glasgow University has brought forward this week, how its rollout is a process, not an event. It will give parents the right and opportunity and information to know what to expect in the school that their children attend. And finally, I want to see if we can engage more parents. It's a parental, uh, uh, per perennial issue. But we need a new approach. And that's why I'm going to bring the third sector in with our officials and with others to see if we can find a way to inspire every parent in Scotland to get engaged in their child's education from beginning to end. And to see if we can establish the idea of every parent as a co-learner with their child, involved in the job of all of society, and taking education to the next stage. Taking education from good to great. Every parent wants the best for their child. 
Irrespective of their own educational experience, every parent has a belief somewhere that education can liberate and change. Schools need to harness that natural uh, impulse as a force for good. The school effect should always be positive. And leadership makes the biggest difference of all to that school effect. Everyone within the education system should be able to demonstrate leadership, whether it's in the classroom, within a school, within the broader community. We've developed a framework for educational leadership, and a new team is going to start within Education Scotland next month to scope out the work to be undertaken to establish a college for educational leadership. But given that impact of leaders, we need to consider whether we are really making the best use of inspirational educational leaders in Scotland. Should we, for example, be considering the impact of our most experienced and effective school leaders beyond their own school? Are we really providing those leaders with the opportunity to experience different schools and different challenges? To my mind, there's no doubt that bringing their experience to bear on different schools and different challenges would let school leaders enrich their own experiences and bring benefits to the schools and communities they might become involved in. Some of that work is being done. We need to work out how to make it happen all over Scotland. And finally, in these six points, the question of innovation applies. Again, I mentioned the Commission of School Reform. It expressed a view that educational innovation in Scotland was more difficult than it should be. I met the Commission last week. I discussed the culture of education in Scotland and the problems of driving forward change. There are, of course, examples of good thinking and good innovation. Curriculum for Excellence is the greatest of them. In Dumfries, the plan for a senior phase school is an interesting model. It's more work needs to be done on it, probably. But there's room for a lot more innovation across the system. Innovation has to be within our traditions. Innovation is not about importing bad ideas. Innovation must be about achieving equity, not diminishing it. So when the round table meets, I want to put this item on the agenda too. Each one of Scotland's 32 local authorities has many exciting and committed educationalists in their employment. The potential for new thinking and new achievement is great. Let's start bringing those ideas to the table and let's start planning the ways in which we can through the massive innovation of Curriculum for Excellence, innovate in delivery and attainment. Anton, as I draw to a conclusion, let me mention Robin Jenkins again. Jenkins was distraught at the failure of the referendum in 1979, the passing up of an opportunity to create a more economically, socially, morally, and spiritually just Scotland. He believed that we should be creating a Scotland worth living in, where honour and justice, to half-quote a line from his historical novel Lady Magdalene, are within reach of all, where there is betterment for the poor and a sense of national purpose and progress. A Scotland in which children would not be held back by the disadvantage of their birth, where, in the words of the Ontario educator Avis Glaze, poverty is not destiny. But Jenkins believed something else. He saw that the potential for creating that kind of Scotland was already here. We have the gift of a better Scotland in our own hands, if only we choose to use them for that task. Rather than waiting for change to be conferred on Scotland from some munificent external source, Jenkins tells us that we only have to rely on ourselves and our own judgment. We can make the choice. We can change Scotland for the better if we take responsibility for our own destiny. We can do it ourselves. Anton, just over a month ago in this university, the students here voted in what turned out to be the 
biggest university election for more than a decade. But the most striking factor in that election was that out of 20,000 students, only 2,500 expressed a preference about the type of Scotland they wanted to live in. I'm an incurable optimist, so I take that as proof of potential rather than a sign of stagnation. Here, the majority of students, like the population across Scotland, have yet to make up their minds. So everything is still to play for. That's why over the coming months, the Scottish Government will continue to work tirelessly to convince people, including our students and young people, that they have nothing to fear and everything to gain from being a normal, independent country. We will do so in every place we can, at every opportunity we can. A couple of weeks ago, for me, it was in the village hall in Ardentini, in front of 21 people. Tonight, it's in this magnificent lecture theatre in front of you all. And next week, I shall be on the island of Colonsey, whose entire population of 160 may well turn out for the debate. There will be many more such contrasts before we're done. When I gave the Adam Smith lecture in this university last month, I said that I didn't see independence as an end in itself. It won't be like the flicking of a switch. In Ireland, the post boxes were painted a patriotic green on independence. Perhaps in Scotland, our post boxes won't change colour. And the liberating effect of independence will take a little more time to show itself. Because education is almost fully devolved, schools may initially feel a little the same as might our colleges and universities. But make no mistake, change will come and we will never look back. When the people who care most about Scotland, the people who live in Scotland, are in charge of all the decisions about Scotland, then they will be in charge of all the decisions about how we invest in, take forward, develop, nurture and strengthen our education system at every level. In Scotland, we know, to paraphrase Disraeli, that it is upon the education of the people of our nation that the fate of our nation depends. But let me be more specific. It's our children who need to be our focus. Our policy of getting it right for every child has as its heart the word every. So we can't succeed until we ensure that every child has the best of chances and the best of education. Closing the attainment gap, demanding equity in our system, is the essential next step. Education must be, as it once was in our past, our national passion. It must, be about our, it must absorb our national attention and care like never before. Because never before will we have been able to make free and independent choices, not just about what we do, but how we choose to pay for it and how we ensure that all the things that impinge on education are supported and corrected too. That is the way we take Scottish education from good to great. Next year offers, the referendum offers us a precious chance to do so, one given to no previous generation. That is our challenge and it must be our choice. I believe that there is only one path to take, and like on any great journey, it is the first step that will count the most. Or to finish on a slogan whose time is still to come, in this university at least, great things start with yes. <laughs>